Hi. Welcome. I want to welcome everyone for this streaming live concerts panel. I am Mark Scarpa, your moderator for today. I'd like to start off by thanking Brian Zisk and Shoshana Zisk for having us all here. We should give them a round of applause. This summit has just been pretty, pretty incredible, and I appreciate them having like an early live concert streaming guy like myself come here and have these wonderful panelists to talk to. Just to go back in time a little bit and give you guys some historical stuff, the, uh, the irony of me being here in San Francisco to do this is, is kind of funny because the, the first large-scale online music webcast or broadcast in history took place in the Golden Gate Park, not far from here, and it was called the Tibetan Freedom Festival. And we had some relatively known or not so known artists at the time called like such as the Beastie Boys, Smashing Pumpkins, Bismarck Key, Richie Houghton, John Lee Hooker, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, Sonic Youth, Back, Foo Fighters, Bjork, De La Soul, The Fugees, Buddy Guy, No Doubt, and Yoko Ono, among others. Uh, the event itself raised $800,000 for the Melarepa Fund for the Tibetan cause. We had 100,000 people in the park attending, and we had 36,000 people online participating use, using Real Audio 1.1 at a 14.4 and 28.8 baud rate. You guys can remember that. Let's hear it for a real audio. There we go. It was way back in time. At the same time that we were streaming the audio, we were doing a JPEG push. So you had sort of like this very slow slideshow from video cameras that we're doing grab frames from back in the day to give an audio-visual experience. The other thing that was cool is we had uh, you know, all of the artists that were there, whether they were performing or not performing, engaged in chat sessions. You guys remember chat? So you can remember the UI was this big chat room with audio streaming and a JPEG push, and it said, Tibetan Freedom Festival, sign the petition, donate now, and that's what was the first large-scale online music experience in history. To share it, there were hundreds of internet cafes around the world that were you know, engaging in meetups, if you will, that could share the experience with one another using another old technology called See You, See Me. If anyone remembers that, raise your hand. There you go. Some old school folks. Yeah, lots of cool stuff, and it uh, probably became you know, chat roulette later on. I'm not sure. But the, the other thing that was interesting is all of that community aspect was being um, shared in these cafes. And on the field itself, we had what was called an action tent that was using uh, land technology that we had basically trenched into the Golden Gate Park and put there with some computers inside the tent. They were also sharing the experience. And we had monks, actual monks, that were bringing people over and saying, here, look at this thing. You can talk to people all around the world and really spread the, the vibe of what's happening here. All this was done using a dedicated backbone circuit provided by our friends at Pac Bell, along with a multi-channel bonded ISDN lines, some of which were actually terminated from payphones inside the park in order to get the, uh, the signal out. Other partners include Mark Cuban of, of then AudioNet, Digital Entertainment Corporation, obviously Real Audio, and of course, SonicNet, uh, and who later went on to become MTV Interactive, and my company at the time, JumpCut, had the opportunity and good fortune to produce it. So today, 
we've talked about how it was. And today, things are so much easier. I just want to take this opportunity to go live on my mobile phone to my channel, which is ustream.com slash overstimulation. I know we're broadcasting it live here, but I just like to have my own uh, broadcast live of this session, if you don't mind. So this is an accomplishment for me because I was the guy doing all of this stuff, and now I can just broadcast a show with my mobile phone. So to give our panelists sort of a sense of our audience and everybody here, how many people have ever participated in an online concert broadcast? Raise your hand, please. Great. So pretty much the majority of you. That was in 1996. 96, right. I think we're in 2013 now, right? Yeah, this is, I think that's, is that right, Judy? Yeah. Okay, great. So, and I've got, you know, got you guys on camera there. So, how many people have actually produced a live concert online in some way, shape, or form? Raise your hand. So, good. A nice, good amount of you. So, hopefully this will, um, will be a pretty interesting panel for you. So, with those kind of stats for our panelists, I want to also throw out some stats from our friends uh, at the end of the table here, IROC. That is pretty interesting. Going back to 1996, 36,000 was the largest online audience in history. That figure stayed that way until the Tibetan Freedom Festival in 97, Tibet 98, and then Woodstock 99. So those were the four biggest events in the 90s. Today, according to IROC, an estimated 100 million people worldwide watched live streaming video during 2012. And for the first time ever, Virtually every major music festival in North America and Europe live stream their concert performances to fans around the world. This stat I found particularly interesting, uh, having been someone that was producing a lot of these shows in the 90s. Maybe there would be two, three, four shows a month. Now there's something on average of about 1,200 live streaming mu music performances per month during the second half of 2012, which is double the number of monthly performances during the first half. So you can see that it's just exponentially growing. This also surprised me. The top concerts by genre, number four, pop music. Number three, folk. Who would have thought? Folk music is making a big comeback, right? Number two, anyone? No, EDM. And what's the number one live stream? Not jam bands, but a good old-fashioned rock and roll. Pretty interesting stuff. So I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have guessed hip-hop, and I would have guessed EDM. But it seems like rock and roll is here to stay. So that said, I, I'm so honored to be among these folks who are paving the way in just next generation all the way. And we, we want to talk a little bit about their backgrounds. We have a really diverse group here. First, I want to start off with Carl Rogers, who's down here at the end. He's um, the co-founder of iRock. And in fact, uh, Carl is the man who founded Universal Interactive Services, which was the first major studio internet division, as well as Time Warner's Roadrunner service, concurrently uh, the second largest broadband service in the world. Second, we have Brian Gruber. Brian is the founder and CEO of Showgo.tv, which streams live shows from clubs in four countries, and announced its public launch today. So congratulations, Brian. Brian's background includes 20 years experience in building teams and brands in cable television and new media in the US, Australia, and China. 
He was the founder and CEO of Fora.tv, many of you may remember Fora, and chief marketing officer for Foxtel, which is Australia's national cable television network. C-SPAN and largest urban divisions of four major cable companies, Jones Interactive Cable, Heritage Scripts, Howard, and Charter. Third, we have Carolyn Barres, and she is the VP of Brand Development of Austin City Limits Live, who's been to South by Southwest. There we go, got a lot of supporters, perfect. She currently oversees sponsorship and branded content for ACL Live. Prior to ACL Live, she was the Vice President of Sponsorship and worked across all of Live Nation's venues and concert tours like OzFest and the Nin Nintendo Fusion Tour. Prior to Live Nation, Carolyn was one of the founders of Chick Click, one of my old favorites, if anyone remembers that, one of the first online communities for young women. She also started her career in Athens, Georgia, and founded Revolution Promotion Management, an artist development indie marketing company focusing on grassroots campaigns, college tours, and radios, and so on. She's on the Board of Governors for the Texas chapter of the Recording Act Academy, which is great. Last but not least, we have Judy Estrin, and Judy is the executive chair of Event Live. Some of you in the music business may not be familiar with Judy, but she has a long, long history in the technology space. She's incredibly accomplished. She has quietly become one of Silicon Valley's most successful serial entrepreneurs and executives. She began her career working with Vint Cerf's research group at Stanford University. These are the same ones that played a central role in developing that thing called the internet that Al Gore claims to have invented, but really it was this guy Vince Cerf, right, and Judy and her friends. Since the early 80s, she has founded seven technology companies, has served as the chief technology officer of Cisco Systems, and held board positions at FedEx for 20 years, Sun Microsystems for eight, and currently sits on the board of the Walt Disney Company, a position she's held since 98. And, oh, a nice little fun factoid, Judy is also the author of Closing the Innovation Gap, and she led the team that developed one of the first commercial local area networks. So we all owe a little debt of gratitude to Judy. It's a pleasure to have all of you guys here. So to kick this off, I kind of would like them to talk about each one of their own companies and what they're doing now in the content context of, like, really what is the, you know, what are the, What's the live concert streaming ecosystem and ecosystem rather, and where do you guys fit in? And Judy, I'd like to start with you if you don't mind. Well, so of all the companies here, people probably know the least about us because we have not let yet officially launched. But I'd like to say that we see ourselves at Event Live as really being at the hub of that ecosystem, bringing artists, brands, and fans together. So. Event Live is a destination site where we will be providing both live streaming coupled with on-demand catalog of library of long-form music. And I think we're going to, I'm going to stop there because I think your questions later on are going to ask me to go on a little bit more about Event Live. So let me just say it's an online venue trying to bring live performance music to the web in a new way. And we'll be talking about the fan experience. And at that point, I'll talk a little bit more about what our vision is for that experience. But the idea is to do it professionally in a way that can uh, monetize a new revenue stream for the music industry, as well as provide a new level of engagement for fans. Right. so delightful sitting between these two people. Anytime there's a, a new player comes into the live streaming space, 
I uh, immediately fall into this depressive homicidal rage. Like, why is someone else doing this? And then suddenly realized, you know, went to Carl's uh, uh, opening event in LA, which was fantastic, and realized tremendous opportunity to build the category and to create something of tremendous value, value together. My background was in the cable TV business. And when I started 4 TV, which is public forums online in 2005, I mean, the starting point for me is there are venues at that point, public affairs venues, who basically could not figure this out uh, by themselves. And once they did, three months later, it was obsolete. So our, you know, my, my deadly motivation for these things is following my passions. And, you know, before it was with public forums and this time with, with venues who have extraordinary events that happen all over the world. Our approach is to start as a, a global brand and to bring people experiences that otherwise never have. And so just as Judy talks about her three constituencies. We look at the, the artist, the venue, and, and the fan for people who can experience something rare and unique. So we've gone out to places like the Blue Note Milan and Jazz Nos Fundos in Sao Paulo and, and created a complete low-cost, high-quality, constantly improving and iterating a production infrastructure that doesn't cost the venue anything so that we can create uh, sometime later this year a, 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 a low-cost membership service so that anyone in the world who owns a digital device could have easy and affordable access to all of these extraordinary clubs all over the world. Great. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Carl? So iRock is uh, the number one source for live streaming concerts worldwide. Uh, so for music fans, that means they have one spot they can go to to find out what's going on line in terms of concerts and artist appearances anywhere in the world. As Mark mentioned, we've been at this for a while. Last year, we indexed and curated and rated oh, about 12,000 individual uh, live stream performance around the world by about 4,000 different artists coming from about 750 different sources or stream sources. When we talk about sources, we talk about both physical venues that are streaming shows that are going on, as well as a, a producer channel on a live stream service like Ustream. And so we're trying to solve the discovery uh, uh, problem with the live stream uh, music industry by doing and ag aggregating all the, the listings into one spot. We, we we're trying to solve that for the consumer side. So from the in to the industry, we then aspire to be a wonderful platform to promote and monetize live stream shows. And it's rather interesting time to be in the aggregating business, uh, kind of our aha moment for creating the company was, well, should we get involved in live streaming concerts somehow? I wonder how many shows are going on right now or this week. And after about a month of not having a good answer to that, we felt like that might be a problem that we'd want to solve. Um, we've already curated about 4,000 uh, performances thus far in 2013. So that puts us on track to double the number of performances that we uh, indexed and curated last year. So um, if you're looking to get into a, an explosive part of the industry uh, and you plan on being in the live industry, uh, live music industry in, a, in, in 2015, you better spend the next couple of years getting really good at it because it's, uh, it is a legit platform that is not a niche or novelty. It's a, it's a legit global broadcast platform where a lot of stars are going to be made and a lot of money is going to be made. So congratulations on being at, the, at this event. So uh, hopefully we can give you some information to turn it around and put into practice and get better at it. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Uh, Caroline, Austin City Limits. 
Tell us about it. Um, we're just a baby theater in Austin, Texas um, that was built a couple years ago. Um, we're the new home of the television show that's been around since the 70s. So um, basically Austin City Limits, the TV show, had been living on campus at UT for a long time. And because of fire code issues, and I think somebody smoking weed at some point over there, uh, I think the fire marshal allowed only about 400 fans. Someone smoking weed in Austin? I mean, it's crazy. There's like well, that one guy. Right. So. <laughs> we, um, we're actually part of a real estate project. Um, we're owned by a real estate developer in Austin, and the, it's a joint venture with Canyon Johnson Urban Fund, um, so Magic Johnson's company out of L.A. Mm -hmm. It's a block, city block. It's a W hotel and residences, and it's a three-story venue. So we kind of have a bread-and-butter business of being an independent venue. You know, we're not a Live Nation or an AEG venue. We're an independent, so we can book, you know, all kinds of promoters um, can come in the venue. Um, at the end of the day, we really want our 80 concerts, our 25 tapings, and our 75 private events to work as, you know, business. What we've really been able to do, luckily, is leverage the fact that KLRU, the public TV station, has a brand new $6 million um, HD uh, production facility. We've put in another $2 million of 3D, so it lives there all the time. So. What we're doing is building platforms for our brand partners like AT&T. Um, we have a new series called Stage Side Live. We have done two shows so far, Keen and The Neon Trees. We're distributing that through CBSI. We're also building something for Vivo. Um, we're developing a country series and a Latin series. And then we've done just special events for, you know, ga live gaming events for Red Bull. Um, when Jay-Z um, did the event last year for American Express and did the sync event um, where you sync your card to Twitter, um, part of our team was used to, and the production facility was used to do that show. So we're really a tiny, tiny venue, um, you know, only 2,800 seats, but we're trying to figure out how to leverage what we've got to be, you know, to have a global reach. Mm -hmm. um, many times I want to look like I'm from Austin, and many times I'm happy that we don't look like we're from Austin. So I think... The Jay-Z Amex thing, you know, they just wanted that to go to as many people, you know, wow. as possible and be massive. So it's great. So we got a great diverse group. I'm I'm gonna just jump right in here and people talk about the live music experience all the time. And all types of different artists have a live music experience in the physical world, in the physical venue. So from your perspective, and what from rather from the fan perspective what should be the live music experience online? And I'd like to put you on the spot, Judy, and have you kick that off since you're uh, about to, to launch pretty sure. soon. So I think one of the key things that we started with when we started thinking about Event Live is clearly I don't need to tell anybody in this room that music is all about emotion. And live performance music is so important because it brings out all of that emotion. And as with any new technology, what usually happens is a new technology comes along and you just repeat the whatever you were doing with the new technology. When TV started, there was a camera in the back of the room and they filled an audience participation. It took them a while to realize that the TV cameras up close was really the way to use this new media. Well, we think that same transition is going on now and a lot of what's been done in terms of live performance online has simply been about how do I stream that live performance online. But you can't possibly, first of all, you can't replace live in person, never. So to try to do that, I believe is a mistake. But 
how do we, in today's world, with the internet, with the web, with social environments, with discovery, with all of the things that the internet and its surroundings can provide, how can we provide an emotional engagement with the fan that is a different emotional engagement but still taps into the emotion behind the music and or the emotional connection with the music. And I think that that's an important part of creating a new experience. It's not just about a little box that you sit there and look at or even projecting it onto your TV screen and looking at it, but there needs to be more around that and whether it is the right level of integration with social and discovery and the context or the story behind the music. There's a whole set of things, but I think that what is really important is to look at it fresh and not simply uh, take a break from what we've been doing in the past, which is about streaming. That's a technology. This is about a user experience, and I think that that's the difference approach that we've taken at Event Live. There's a lot of technology behind what we do, but really what, where we started is what should the experience be for the fan and what is the best way for the artist to engage with those fans. Absolutely. Does anyone have anything to add to that? Brian? I just think that uh, you know, the, the title of the panel is uh, Streaming Live Concerts, but the live streaming medium offers such a much broader spectrum of fan engagement than just the moment you step on stage until the moment you go off stage. So anybody that's looking at engaging a fan needs to broaden the horizon uh, beyond just the performance. Um, and you get into context. And uh, there's a lot of theories about what, what happened to the recorded side of the business. And you know, bottom line is there is an oversupply of recorded material out there available in anywhere you want. So if you're an artist or anybody connected to an artist, you look at, okay, recorded is what it is, and let's make the best of it. Live is what I have, and I can control that. And so you can bring scarcity back into the equation. You can bring context back into the equation beyond just the performance. That said, um, an artist is presented with a tremendous amount of challenges, and I think Judy touched on it earlier. Um, they're used to the feedback loop of looking at the audience and getting energized by that. And so when you have artists performing for a dry room to you know, 50,000 people that they can't see, um, you need to start to look at how not to just engage the audience, but how to engage the artist in what the audience is doing. And so um, expand the horizon that you're looking at. It's cheap now to go get to your fan base uh, on your terms. It's not always the most enjoyable thing to do a meet and greet, but when you can do it on your terms and you can turn the camera off and say, I gotta go, without having to you know, um, uh, make people upset, it's really a wonderful, wonderful thing. So. You know, this brings up a follow-up question, which is really uh, to that point, which is how do you unify the fan experience so that we talk about social, we talk about participation, we, we talk about the artist turning on and off the camera. How do you unify that conversation, that engagement, so you have the online audience, the physical real-world audience, and the performance itself all aware of one another and making that show special? Uh, I can say we haven't figured it out yet, but it's something we're talking a lot about mm -hmm. um, with our AT&T innovation partners and you know, all kinds of technology. I think we've figured out a way to make a live concert that's sold out, great for the 
great for the band because it seems like a sold-out show. It seems like a, the same kind of widespread panic or keen show that's mm -hmm. sold out, and it feels great to the band. We can make it look beautiful because of the, the broadcast facility. We, there can be a really cool dialogue that happens online, even through chat or whatever. So whether you know, fans are saying, hey, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina at a bar, and I'm watching it with all my buddies, or hey, we just put the kids to bed, and now we you know, poured a drink, and we're you know, dancing on the, the rug. I mean, people like to see that dialogue. I think mm -hmm. what we haven't figured out is how can the fan at the venue say to their friend at home, come to the show with me tonight? And I think we're just continuing to figure out what's the hook, what's the hook, what's the next thing. I don't have an answer. I think that's what we're always trying to figure out. So there is sort of a, there's a reason why I want to go and tune into that. There's a really good hook. You know, whether it's flock to unlock and you unlock an encore and that's what, the, you know, you're able to do from home. That's what we're trying to figure out. Tune in. Judy, you had a, oops, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Brian, go ahead and then we'll there have Judy. Several come. dimensions to that and it depends on the kind of venue. If you're in a big stadium, very hard to control what people are doing with their mobile devices anyway. Uh, that's a certain type of experience, and that music might be more uh, uh, spectacle-oriented as opposed to the kind of intimate clubs that we're in who often discourage the use of mobile devices or, or people's uh, uh, interaction with, with the artist. So uh, partly depends on the venue, uh, partly depends on something as simple as allowing someone, and even when we, we start to monetize, we want to allow people to share that with their social networks so the artists and the venue get that additional exposure. Allowing people to experience a show that you're at is one level, an obvious level, and that should be done. But then what, uh, what, what kind of tools do you want to use either to make that form of interactivity part of the concert experience and part of what that venue uh, is, is promoting? Uh, or to what degree does the venue want to, to squelch that and, and, and not allow that? Mm. Judy, you have some thoughts? say a variation of, of what you said, which is, uh, first I want to make a comment. When you talked about a dry room, I, I personally think those models are not going to work as well as models where a performance is being given and you can leverage that performance by bringing it online either at the same time or afterwards, because I, just because of that, uh, that feedback. But I, I think that we should be careful looking for one-size-fits-all solutions to this answer, and that even within one site, and as we look at our planning, we view different solutions for different types of artists. So a brand artist is going to have a different set of requirements and needs than a mid-tier than the long tail. And I think that uh, big arenas are different than intimate venues. Mm -hmm. And it's both the reason why you're going to see multiple companies pop up in different niches and trying to address different solutions. That, it, it is a sign of where the industry is right now. For a while in any new industry, and unfortunately I'm old enough to have seen many of these cycles, but that you start off with just complete, nobody's, nobody's paying attention, so you can break all the rules and you can try to do different things. Then all of a sudden when a market starts to get serious, people start paying attention. And you actually have to start following some of the rules because people are getting a sniff of there's money to be had. And we watched this in the internet. Once it became a money opportunity, people paid much more attention than, than before. And I think we're right in that stage right now. And you're going to see a number of different companies who are going to try attacking at this from different angles and hopefully be able to work with the music industry to innovate and try lots of different things. Because any of us who say we have the answers, 
we have some of the answers. We have our set of biases that we're trying to try with those of you who are the artists and on the music industry side. But this is a wonderful time to be jumping into this industry because it's a time of experimentation and trying different things. And then what we're going to see in, in a couple of years is consolidation. So we'll see people not be able to see it through because they don't have the technology or they don't have the resources or they don't or they haven't followed the rules and people figure it out. And others will emerge and we will figure out what are the suite of things that that work the same way the industry has in other areas. And just as we're getting that done, some new technology is going to come up. But we're right in that sweet spot right now of um, experimenting. And it's one of the reasons why it is so important to have to, for people to be willing to take risks. So companies have to be willing to take risks and stick our neck out and try to do something hard, as opposed to saying, what's the easy part of the market? Let's tackle the stuff that Licensing, yeah, we actually have to figure out the licensing problem. How do we do it? How do we do it efficiently and how do we work with people? And on the music industry side, being willing to take risks to try something. And you know what? You'll probably make some money. Maybe not in the first month, maybe not in the first couple of months, but over the long term, this is a way to make more money, not to, uh, not to lose out on something. So it's a fascinating time, but where I started this, there is no one-size-fits-all in the music industry, it's too diverse. And so therefore, anybody who tells you there is a technological solution that will fit everybody's needs, um, there isn't. Right, so we talked about it from the fan perspective a little bit here, and, and all those comments are valid. Uh, you know, but what about the artists? What does live streaming mean for the artists themselves? As my good friend Steve Rennie who's here uh, from Renman MB would say, fuck the gatekeepers. Is this live streaming a way for artists to truly reach their audience and, and have a disruptive technology that they can broadcast live from their phone and finally be able to monetize and make some money in their own way? I'm going to hit that right back at you, Judy, and well, I see think, what your I think are. it depends on what the artists want. So if you want to do that and you haven't already given away all your rights, then streaming from your phone gives you one level of experience. If you want to be playing in a venue or in an, uh, a larger, uh, an intimate venue or a larger venue and you want professional uh, cameras and have that stream at a different level of quality, you can do that also. But the key thing here is as an artist, you have to, if you want to enter this realm, which I believe you should because what it does is gets you access to lots of fans in a much more leveraged way and a less exhausting way. But you do have to kind of be cognizant of who owns you, who owns your rights. Because we have actually found ourselves in conversations where we've kind of gone down a path and all of a sudden someone looks at us and said, oh, maybe I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And so it is as you kind of start to participate here, um, if, you, if someone does, hasn't already locked you up, then yeah, it's a way to be able to democratize and not need, reach fans in a way in which other people can do some of that marketing. On the other hand, labels aren't going to go away. There is a role for labels. It's just changing as the industry changes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, depending on where you are in your career and what level of help you need to build that base and gain access and what genre you're in and what communities you participate in, 
that answer might be yes, mm -hmm. or it might be go to your label and insist that they get on board with you to figure out how to get get yourself online. So, so the 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 answer really is in. in to, for an artist to do live streaming, it's ultimately to gain more exposure and more fans and, an, and a direct access with your audience. So I, I know, Carl, you had a good example of an artist that, who's doing that right now? I mean, you know, we've seen all the YouTube musical artists that have gone on to become huge from Lady Gaga to Bieber to Carmen and all these artists, but who's really using the live streaming medium as a way to gain exposure build a fan base, build a brand, and become popular. Yeah, so the having access to a global broadcast distribution system uh, is a relatively new phenomenon for a lot of artists. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, that the answer to that age-old question, will artistry find its own level or does it need assistance from a machine like a label or from a, a promoter? And I don't have the answer to that, but I do know that there are several examples of people out there getting online, uh, whether it's through Ustream or Livestream or Justin, growing a fan base from zero to 20 to 30,000 people um, that, are, that are not just followers, these mythical fans that follow once and actually don't end up following, but we're talking about 20 or 30,000 live bodies showing up for a live stream show. Um, uh, one example uh, on the male artist side is a, is a guy by the name of Austin Mahone, who uh, actually used Ustream platform to build up an, an incredibly large fan base, uh, was doing weekly shows, uh, uh, I apologize in advance for this Ustream, but this is, the, this is what happened. Uh, I went back to check on him a couple of days ago, and uh, his Ustream account was no longer active. And I said, oh, God, that's not good. And so I Google, and I find, oh, guess what? He's jumped to YouTube with massive McDonald's sponsorship. He's got now 2.5 million followers. Uh, he is and on average how many live how many people come and watch his live shows and how often is he doing I only that? know when we were tracking him last year on Ustream uh, and legitimately he was getting 40 to 50,000 we'll say girls in the age of you know 13 to 18 showing up every Wednesday for his show religiously building his fan base so now he is into kind of the top tier you know, Google, YouTube knows who he is. McDonald's knows who he is, and he's doing his thing. That's like selling uh, out two amphitheaters on the weekend. That's like what Jimmy Buffett does right. on the weekend. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're a 16-year-old kid, maybe that's a good path for you. If, on the other hand, you're a uh, female in her late 20s who looks pretty good and can play guitar and write some songs, you might want to go check out Google Hangouts. There's a lot of guys that are interested in, uh, in kind of getting entertained while they're coding. Um, Dar <laughs> Daria uh, Musk, legitimate performer, seriously. She's really good. And uh, she was one of the first artists to fully embrace the Google Plus uh, Hangouts model. Um, and uh, has built up uh, in her circles over 3 million 
followers. Uh, she had, and this is brilliant marketing, a wonderful Valentine's Day uh, concert that was, uh, if I can trust my contributors and editors uh, that we have, attended by over 50,000 people. Um, so there's some real artists breaking online. It kind of destroys the uh, eons old path of breaking locally, then regionally, then nationally, then globally. So, right. you know. And, and you talked about uh, something there that everybody in the room wants to understand. It's like, how are they, how are companies like all four of yours in your different perspectives going to help enable uh, an artist that is using live streaming to build an audience and then to be able to monetize that audience in a live streaming environment. So uh, actually, Brian, why don't we start yeah, it's, with you? It's another, and it's another arrow in the quiver. And for yeah. every big macro example of someone who's busting out the, you know, the, the, the walls with very big numbers, I think you look at the micro opportunity, which is simply that the live experience offers a level of intimacy with the artist that you're not going to get listening to them on Spotify or Pandora or elsewhere. So it simply is another form of social media and another form of intimacy with which they can develop a deeper bond with that fan. Uh, what we do is when, when an artist uh, appears on, on Shogo TV, we provide them with a complete bucket of tools that, that they can use, mostly traditional uh, social media, so that their fans are able to communicate with them. We can, they can even send uh, a request to the stage if they want to, or, or comments to the stage if the, if the artist wants to track that. But I think ultimately, there's sort of two buckets of value. One is the promotion and branding opportunity where an artist can say to their fans, you've been listening to me all this time, or you live in a place where you can't see a live show, now you can actually have this experience with me for two hours on stage. And then separately, there's a monetization piece. I think now, increasingly, uh, artists are comfortable with the promotion, branding, service to fans, a part of it, but uh, long term, they want to see that monetized and see this be a legitimate ongoing revenue stream. Do, do you guys add value to the venue? like? It, is an artist wanting to play at a venue that's enabled by your technology over another venue? I think that's going to happen uh, slowly uh, over time. And I think as there's more and more artist acceptance, where artists have great experience, like we just had a couple of shows uh, with uh, Ricky Lee Jones and Sean Colvin, where they, they just, it was the first time I believe that they did it. They had such a great experience. When those artists are talking to their fellow artists over the next few months, mm -hmm. there's going to be that right. growing acceptance. And then they will be looking for that opportunity. But also, if they're on tour, it might be that it's a 13-city tour. They want to have at least one of those shows that are live streamed so that sure. people who can't be on that tour can access that experience. Sure. So you're, you're taking one part of, the, of the, uh, you know, the ecosystem, which is the smaller indie artist, and then they sort of graduate to an Austin City Limits type of environment. So tell us how you're empowering your artists that go through your end venue who are already in most cases, pretty established. I mean, they're at right. the venue level, right? right? So next after that is stadiums and then arenas. So this is sort of the second stop on their economic food chain right. of, of their artist existence. There's not an amphitheater in Austin. There will be this summer. So many times you're getting the amphitheater artists that were playing Dallas and Houston. They would come play our venue maybe one or two nights. Mm -hmm. So, But Austin's so competitive in booking that even at the end of the day, we're trying to leverage all our bells and whistles to make sure we get the show, because that's really going to drive ticket sales and beer sales and sponsorship sales just for my core business, mm -hmm. which drives more revenue. Right. So let's say I win the, um, the Keen show and Stubbs doesn't get Keen. Well, that's a huge win in and of itself. 
And then for Keen, you know, we want them to come there. There's a Sirius XM studio on our campus, and they can go there and do something promotionally. They can do the live stream. Obviously, it's huge promotion for them. Mm -hmm. um, the bands that we're choosing, though, are also very deep in social media, so they're helping us promote in the whole cycle. And then at the end of the day, we're talking, of course, they're getting compensated with licensing and things like that, but all that content that's really high-quality broadcast content goes through kind of three streams, uh, three parts of a cycle, live, live, video on demand online for about 90 days, and then we package it for a download on AT&T Uverse. So it's a long sort of 90-day promotion for the band, and then at the end of that, that reverts back to who owns the content. Mm -hmm. So they so, get the content back, which then they can monetize through their own fan base and outlets, and yeah. you're covering all the production costs in right. that sense. Okay, great. So uh, to, to go up from that, Judy, how do you guys plan to really take uh, artists and, and, in essence, use live streaming to help grow their career? So I think that there are a couple of aspects to it. Because we've chosen the approach of being a destination site as opposed to uh, a venue extension or venue-centric, um, I would call us more artist-centric. But um, we're really looking to actually, so th there's a number. We're, one is we're looking to create essentially a network effect amongst artists and fans because we are looking to have cross genres and cross uh, um, levels of artists, as you were talking about, whether it's brand as well as um, the next tier down, all the way eventually to the long tail. We're not starting with the long tail. We're starting with... Uh, uh, artists that are already professionally touring to some extent. And, but by having the brand names and the different tiers of artists and the different types of artists on the same site with the right type of discovery and recommendation, uh, engines associated with it, you do create a network effect. Because when somebody comes to attend a live concert online, it's not a one-off type of thing. And they aren't just there. They watch the concert but they can actually get access to and, and explore and learn about other artists at the same time. So artists get pulled up or get pulled across by other artists by just being on the site. So there is a network effect in terms of artists on the site. The other are just features we have on the site that help the artists uh, promote um, themselves and whether it's this performance or other performance. And then the third is the, what we will be doing to promote, prom, uh, to promote Event Live as a destination site, which then helps promote the, uh, the artists and the concerts along with them. That's great. Um, before we open it up to questions, I wanted to talk about one more thing that's really artist-centric in, in the monetization space. Do you guys feel that the fans and the online participants, and this is, I'm going to start off um, with you, Carl, on this, because you probably have some good stats on this. We all know that some subscription services are, are happening right now with live broadcasting. We've seen pay-per-view happening. What are the numbers? How is it? Where has it been? Where is it going? Is it viable for a young indie artist like the one that you were talking about doing a show with 20,000 people coming every week to charge a buck? Is that something where they're creating a channel, a full experience, not just the live broadcast, but their fan page is tied to that. They're communicating with the artists, and it's an entire... Uh, experience. Yeah, you know, uh, this is the ultimate there's no one-size-fits-all answer here That's because right. artists are in their 
evolution and growing their fan base. Sometimes they're in the promo mode. Sometimes they're into, I'm sick and tired of promo, pay me. So um, I thought they were always in that mode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of artists are hesitant to go, to be out there among the first to charge for a show that their peers and in fact maybe even bigger artists are doing for free because the other show might be sponsored. And so I'm a huge fan of the pay what you can method of compensating an artist. Like Radiohead and, with their last album. Sure, uh, when they, they did their, re, when they re, re, released their they didn't repeat the second time around. They didn't repeat it. Yeah. Well, maybe they're not as, but mm. so, you know, I don't know. They're, you know, doing a pay what you can for a, for a album format mm. that is in decline. Um, they might not have achieved the sales that they thought for a bunch of different reasons, but. Or for live. At any rate, for live, um, you know, I've seen successful bands go out there and get, you know, $30 for a two-day pass that comes with some little spiff, some little, a hat or, a, or a, a special event T-shirt that's only available to the online audience. Um, so the price points are out there. You know, uh, Rolling Stones uh, did a 30 bucks show. Didn't get the buy rate that they thought on that. Um, I think it's a little too soon to start figuring out, you know, uh, different fixed point pricing. Sure. Um, but uh, I don't think you can go wrong with a pay what you can and then set a minimum. So it's kind of a tricky pay what you can. Pay what you can as long as it's at least this. A little bit. Um, Judy, uh, yeah. So Judy, you have some follow-up thoughts just, on that? I was just going to add that, um, you know, I think this, I said earlier that I think we're at a time of experimentation. and. I think some of the answer to this is actually up to all of us. So if all of us decide that no way people aren't going to pay, everything has to be free, we will essentially take the monetization or we will lower the monetization in this media forever. Um, you can decide that you're going to do things for free initially, but um, it's up to us, those of us who are the pioneers in any industry, to tr at least try out different models and show people um, what they can get. Now, to charge, to think that you can charge $30 or $80 online for just anybody is automatically saying that you're going to get people to turn off. But there are price points, and it's been shown in the music business that there are price points in all different uh, areas of the music business that people will pay. And so I think to automatically assume that there, everything has to be free is not the right way to approach this period of time. I think the right thing to do is to try with different artists, to try combinations and try different price points and be willing to see what the elasticity of the market is and actually give, uh, give the fans experience that is worth that money. Right. Because if we assume everything's free, then everything will also go to the lowest common denominator. Now, there's free, sponsored free, which means it's not actually free. Somebody's paying for it. And I will say that one of the beauties of online sponsorship versus sponsoring a tour is the entry level is much lower. So there's lots of brands that would love to engage with music fans 
and just can't afford to today because it's too expensive. And so one thing this whole area provides in terms of online um, live performance music is a way for brands of smaller companies to engage with music fans because it doesn't have to be the same, uh, the same price. I think it goes in sequences where first there's a period, as Carl was talking about, where there's a socialization where people are first experiencing shows online, and that's happening with the extraordinary numbers that Carl gave out more and more. Then there's going to be a wave of experimentation with user experiences getting to the point where the damn thing is worth paying for. And then there'll be a gradual evolution where, where, where artists will have a complete ecosystem in place where they're uh, uh, playing at a given club or a venue. And someone who can't experience that elsewhere will absolutely want to pay if there's terrific value and if there's a, uh, a, a terrific experience that's being delivered. Caroline, any thoughts on that before I open it up to questions? Well, I think it's all about reacting to the communities. So yeah. let's talk about the jam band community and how every that it's a, that's a 40-plus year culture of collecting and trading tapes and collecting yeah. shows and being obsessed with the set list of every, you know, there's gold in every single set. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, we did our first, first pay-per-view was a, through Mil Million Eye Technology on Facebook. Um, it's the first time we did any of it and we did it behind a paywall and it, it was fine. We, you know, the band made some money. It was okay. I don't think we would have done that with a pop act. I think you mm -hmm. can do it with a jam band. So I do think it's all about, for us, what we're trying to figure out is, if 300,000 people visited the venue last year as a fan, and about 5 million uniques visited the venue last year digitally, from, yeah. then how do I just capture them? How do I find them? How can I grab them and remarket to them or continue to create value and, mm -hmm. and, and harness that community? Right. Um, yeah. Really about it. So the answer is, it's di again, we go back to the beginning of our conversation, is every instance is different. And we're in an experiment experimental phase. Uh, participation between the online audience, the offline audience, and the artists is paramount, and delivering a good experience all the way around adds value to the space, right? Mm -hmm. Great. So let's uh, open it up to what our folks in the audience feel. Uh, this gentleman right here with the baseball cap, you have a question? Yeah, I got a mic over here, guys. So I'm yep. going to be running it around. Make sure you're speaking into the mic so that we can get everything. Oddly enough, we are you streaming this right now, so we want to get the audio as, in there well. As am I. Yeah. Hi, Dave, Dave Marlin. Dave Marlin. I'm not going to stand go. up. but So I go to a lot of concerts in a year, hundreds, literally, average over the last few years. This year, I won't go to as many. Um, there's something unique about going to a concert, which is it's unpredictable. It's happening in a time-bound moment. It's live. I'm going to run into people, some people I want to see, some people I don't want to see. I may ogle beautiful women, whatever. I like to buy a few beers. I bought beers in your theater. How are you going to capture, maybe this is too experimental right now, or maybe this is the experiment and we're just early on it, but how are you going to not just get me to pay and watch Widespread Panic or um, Radiohead in, in your theater, but really kind of go on my couch to the concert, possibly invite friends over to my place, and it's already collective and communal, it's live, people are doing it together, it's a warm room. How do, I, how do I get that extra level of participation where I'm going to run into people online or, or, or get to have a little chat with the band or request a song? I'd love to hear this for the encore, whatever it is. How are you going to get me that next level of participation to make it really feel like it's, it's live and it's happening now? Well, you're never going to get it to really feel, uh, thank God. And you, you, you've, you've got to go to the show. And I think our message to the venues and the artists is that um, uh, uh, People should go to the show, and in all of our social media and all of our promotion, 
leading right up to the day of the show, we say, no, 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 go to the show. And if you absolutely can't go, which of course, even people you know, in a metro area, 99% of them are, are, are not going to think about going, uh, th then there's an opportunity, I, I think, to do one of two levels. One, simply to experience uh, that artist and to see what they're doing on stage uh, is, is an extraordinary experience. Sharing it with your friends, watching it with other people. And then I think there's a growing set of tools now, both with interacting with artists who, who are there, interacting obviously with, with tools like Twitter and, and, and Facebook of, of other people who, who uh, you can chat with and, and talk with. And I think those tools will continue to evolve. I think there'll be essential parts of the user experience, but ultimately uh, got to go to the show. And I think our claim will never be that it, it's as good. I think what we're trying to do is build a parallel experience, not the same experience. Right. And um, there are a number of different things which I'm not going to go into in detail here and, and wait until Event Live launches. And then you can see, and we have more coming down the line. But we're pre-launched, so I don't want to talk about all of them. But I do think there are things you can do to enhance the experience, not just socially with your friends, but in terms of running into people and in terms of how, uh, how you connect with the experience. But I will also say, and I saw you sit down and see that you have some crutches, you can't go to the concerts that you want to go to necessarily. So um, the ultimate is to be able to provide the best emotional experience possible. It's going to take us time to get there. And in the meantime, you're going to have some of those features and be able to have a whole bunch of people who can't get to the concerts that they want to get to be able to get to those concerts from their couch and, and, or from their phone or from a party and wherever they are. So I think there are two levels of this. The ultimate is exactly what you're saying, is you really want to find the ways to connect the online and offline communities and connect the online, not just with the artists, but also with the other people there. But I also think that there's a great benefit until you get to that ultimate in terms of providing you exposure to something that you just can't go to, either because you have a cast or you just had a new baby. One of those two things can keep you from a concert. That right. All good stuff. I, I think the point of view for a stage side is how, do you, how can you put the fan on the side of the stage, just like you're at the poser pad at Bonnaroo and you're loving it. Um, but we don't call it the poser pad. You're on the side of the stage, right? It's super awesome. Um, that's, a, that's the perspective of stage side. So how do you get up close and personal with the band? How do you follow them after the show and interview them? How do you see their side stage rituals, doing some kind of high five or, you know, chugging a beer or whatever it is, stage side? But I have to say, like, I've been working on selling this for two years, and I'm sweating this every day. I'm thinking about this every day, the question you're asking. And I'm sweating it because I don't want to see, I still want to try to push, push, push and be super unique and, and bring value to the fans. So yeah. it's something we're kind of trying to figure out. Great question. Um, who has other questions? Um, and uh, in the interest of time, since we have a couple of questions, can you just direct it to one person on the panel, please? Uh, we'll go with you here and then you, sir, next. Uh, this is directed to you, Caroline. Um, <clears throat> Why haven't we seen a venue um, like yours, or you could even use uh, House of Blues, uh, given the cost that it takes to produce and stream a show, renting cameras, renting crew, and actually produce the show, it's much cheaper to do a one-time setup fee at a localized venue. Why haven't we seen somebody like, like yours 
just charge a subscription to, to the public. So all of the Austin City Limits are available to you for X amount of month, and you can watch all of our archive footage as well. They're building a, um, is Joel Corpy here? He built the Rockify app, and that's launching um, very soon, and it's a very small subscription, actually, so you can unlock all the archives. So it's called Rockify, and there's a guy who I know is it called Joel Corpy who's mm -hmm. actually launching that. It's $5. So there you go. It's happening. Uh, uh, we have a question from this gentleman over here. And it'd be great if you could tell us if you're an artist, a producer, a manager, or yourself, so we get some perspective on where your question's coming from. I'm, I'm with Event Live as well, full disclosure. So oh, I'm go. in this space. There I'm actually go. one of the co-founders of Event Live. Ah. Um, my biggest, uh, so one of the biggest roadblocks to making this reality for all of us uh, in this space is figuring out where the rights actually lie. Um, and when you start talking about doing both live streaming as well as video on demand, uh, you start to get concerned with publishing syncs and, and all sorts of different various issues. And who, I won't pick a person on the panel, but whoever would one. most like I'm gonna to... I'm going to pick Judy. You, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> sure. You're asking the question, she's going to answer. How, how, you know, if, if you could say one thing to the music industry, how do you think we can most work together, all the people in this room, to... Uh, to compensate correctly the publishers and, and get those people whose livelihoods depend on uh, those checks correctly paid, but also allow this industry to move forward and growth and blossom in such a way that, that allows us uh, to have these, uh, these conversations in these companies. Great question, but I want to clarify. Do you mean how you guys are going to pay publishers or how through your initiatives the publishers will ultimately end up paying the artists? Uh, two different things. Neither really. How, how we can create a system by which to work together so that everyone's compensated. So Great. the full pipeline. Love that. Judy? So first let me say that this was not set up. Um, yeah. In the speaker room, we actually decided to avoid talking about the rights issue. I forgot to tell you that as I walked in the door. Um, yeah, it, and it was not a planted question. Um, but I, I, I did mention in our conversation in the in the speaker room, and I alluded to it earlier on that um, in order for this to happen, it takes all of us working together. Right now, the system of, and, and let me say also full disclosure, I'm on the board of Disney. I have a lot of respect for protecting one's copyrights. But there is ways to be protective and uh, defensive and there's and, and obstacles and there's ways to be protective and to engage in innovation and allow innovation to happen. And I think the music industry is just now going through that period and we really need to look. Um, uh, the approach we've taken at Event Live, as I said, is not to work around the rights, but to work with the industry to uh, understand where the rights lie and what we need to do to legally do what it is we're, we're going to do. But I do believe that the industry, um, the, the music industry, and that means labels, it means publishers, it means artists, it means lawyers, because a lot of the influencers in this industry are the lawyers who are the glue that ties everything together, need to think through um, the systems that have worked in a certain paradigm and maybe become obstacles in a paradigm going forward. And so we have to relook at those systems and say, how can we streamline them? Not how do we not pay people. 
because they were put in place because people deserve to be paid for the work that they do, mm -hmm. and they deserve their fair share of the work that they do. Um, we need to figure out this is a chance to actually, and a reason to be a little disruptive, to relook at it. And different people have different approaches. Some people say, throw it all out. Let's have anarchy. And then people will figure out how to come along. We happen to be taking a slightly different approach, which is trying to work with people to say, what is a business model that works in this new world such that people do get paid fairly? And that means not just the publisher, not just the label, but the, the artist also. And whoever is providing the service needs their fair share to be able to add all these features and provide the technology that, that can scale. So there, there needs to be a split here. And have we figured it out? I don't know. We'll know in a year. But we're, we're trying to work through it with people. There is no question in my mind that something has to give here and be streamlined, or we have a huge block to innovation in this area because it's just way too hard right now. And there's a big distinction between live, live, we have performing rights, which are relatively simplified and streamlined, and the focus of our service is to do it live, and those artists who are in control of their publishing will put that on demand over the course of time. We never expect to get 100% of, of artists who are in control of their publishing rights and their, their labor relations. By the way, another comment about the subscription thing. I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm an old cable guy. You charge people money. You raise their rates often, and it's a great business. So <laughs> there you go. So, so, so the, the cable so, guy the, loves there, the there, subscription. There are people like Smalls, yeah. which is one of our newest partners in yeah. New York. They've been doing for yep. a year or two a, a subscription service. I think it's a great way of delivering value. You value that club, or you want a hundred clubs. You, you pay it. either just for that club, or you pay for all of them, one low, e easy price. Have it all aggregated in one's clubs club. or artists or however you want. Well, That's thank right. you, everyone, and thank you all for coming. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Carl. And thank you, Caroline. And of course, uh, we're on a break now, so feel free to attack them. <laughs>